Oh, good morning, everybody. Anybody up late last night watching the television? Yeah, no, don't ask that question. Did anybody watch that um, program about Moses? Did you see it? It was an interesting take. I've seen it before, but it, it was very interesting. It's a sort of modern take on the story of Moses, and it kept fairly closely to the biblical account, didn't it? Oh yes, it was definitely yeah, it was modern stuff. One of the interesting things is that they showed Moses talking to God, but God was represented as a sort of ten-year-old child, and so every time that God appears to Moses, it's the same ten-year-old child. And as you go through the story, you see Moses getting older and older, but the child's always the same every time the child appeared. But I thought it worked quite well, and it made me think. That this is what prayer is about. It's about talking to God. Because the, the interaction between Moses and God w- was quite relaxed. Um, there was a couple of one-liners which were almost quite amusing. Where um, the child said to Moses, um, you don't always do what I say. And then Moses becomes very paternal and says to the child, you don't always do what I say either. <laughs> and it was, it was there, there, there were sort of moments like that. But it was this, this idea of... Prayer is talking to God. And if you, break, if you ask yourself, what is prayer? What is prayer? In actual fact, it really is, it sums up the whole of your Christian experience. Prayer is nothing short of what God has called you to. To live a life of prayer. As we've, we've seen the, the verse, pray always. What is prayer? Now, Jesus makes things incredibly simple for us. And he was asked by his disciples, teach us to pray on more than one occasion. And and Jesus lays out very simple format for prayer, which I'm very pleased to say has become more back into public or Christian consciousness over the last five or ten years. But I would again bring you back and say, please listen to what Jesus said. Go back and look at the Lord's Prayer. And ask, is this my experience of prayer? And if we read the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And if we look at the history of the development of of the Jewish nation from Abraham uh, right up to the the time of Christ, we find that they had a peculiar talent, an unfortunate talent, one of not following God's will. They continually put their will ahead of God's will. And we might say they were pretty maybe they stand out for being so stiff-necked until we look at the history of the church from 2000 till today and we have to say in all honesty they probably did pretty well the church after the time of Jesus has distinguished itself by its ability to disagree over very simple things to divide to divide again to actually fight wars with each other over doctrine. 
And I think if you go back to all these problems, there is one major, major issue that stands out above all the others. And I think I would ask you to measure your Christian maturity by how you handle this issue. Because this is the mother and father of all error. And it's in the Lord's Prayer. And you know what I'm going to say. Whose will is to be done? Thy will done? Or my will to be done? And look at the basis, the underlying problem in nearly every one. In fact, I go as far as to say every one of the times that the Jewish nations turned away from God. Whether it was an individual prophet, whether it was the nation, uh, whoever it was. It comes down to man replacing his will instead of God. And if you look at the divisions in the Christian church from the time onwards, they nearly always come down to this, man fighting man over man's will. Not thy will be done, but my will be done. Christian maturity or growing in God is simply humbling yourself and trying to bring your will in line with his. Now, I'm not going to go into a whole list of errors that have crept in the church, particularly in the last 30 odd years, um, where we've had whole movements built and developed on the concept that you pray in faith, in inverted commas, where faith here is a word that's replaced by nagging God until he does what you want. Now, no wonder people find prayer difficult, because it's difficult to nag God to get him to do what you want. As sort of humorously was shown in that film last night, uh, God just looks at you and says, well, I'll wait till you understand. Prayer is not telling God what you want and nagging him, called prayer or fasting or whatever, until he does what you want. It's the other way around. It's you adjusting your will to him. Discipleship is not coming to God with a list of uh, visions and expectations that you want in your life and then telling God what you want and asking him to bring them along so you can be a wonderful servant. That is the opposite. If you teach young people that, no wonder they will walk away from their faith. No wonder you will struggle. It's the opposite. It's coming before God and saying, God, what is your will for my life? And as soon as you bring that to young people and they start to understand that, they can become relaxed. Because your, your task is to follow God. He knows where he's taking you. Follow him. You don't have to be rich, powerful, or clever or whatever. You just have to be in God's will. And that's the achievable goal. Very different than struggling, struggling, struggling to try and be something you're not. The same for an individual. The same for everybody. Prayer is aligning yourself to God's will. So when we come to our prayer time, let's look at this. Because immediately we tend to slip back into giving God advice. And if for anything else, that, that, that film was, yeah, it was a bit dramatized. It was, uh, um, it, it, it sort of handled some things and watered them down a little bit like it turned the burning bush into sort of vision that he had when he was knocked out and this, that and the other. But uh, with all that, the, 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 this picture of this relationship between this child who was, who was God and Moses 
um, was really quite telling because there's this struggle goes on between when they first meet and Moses is the man and this, this little child turns up and Moses is going to be in charge. And the very end scene almost where um, Moses is now an old man and the child appears again and now very different attitude from Moses. This is our Christian journey. It's, it's to move our lives so that we are submitted to him. One of the reasons that we make this error is because we misinterpret some areas of scripture. So what I'm going to do now is, is just look at a few, just three points of scripture. And next week, we're going to ask another question, which is, how can I know God's will? How do I know God's will? It's one thing to say, align yourself to God's will. Well, how do I know what his will is? That we'll look at next week, or we might start this week. But the important thing, it is not knowing God's will that matters. It's the heart preparation to submit to what he tells you or he's going to tell you. It's a heart thing about being in submitted to him as opposed to telling him what you would like. You may be very wise, very well taught, very educated, but you're not God and he knows better. Let's look at three examples. I want you to look carefully at what actually happens as opposed to what you may think happens from your, your previous understanding of the scripture. We're going to start with Genesis 18, uh, verses 16 to 25. And remember that this is Genesis 18. We're looking at um, Abraham, and we're looking at the time before the Jewish law has been given, before God has laid down what his scriptures are. So we're looking at a time when the understanding of God's law is, is a little bit, it's not quite so clear as it is, say, the time of Moses. But nevertheless, there is an understanding amongst the people and amongst Abraham that God has values and God has standards. So this is the time when um, there are three men who come to Abraham and Sarah. And this is the time they tell Sarah that she's going to have uh, a child. And, and she laughs. She, this is a bit much to take on. She doesn't understand this, but the, the story goes on. And then the three men go to leave. And um, as they, they go to leave, this is the story. Then the three men set out from there. And they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to start them on their way. The Lord said, now, this is a story. Don't get tied up too much about who the three men were. Some people say it was the theophany, it was Jesus with two archangels, and some people say the three men are clearly speaking for God in this story, and God is speaking through these three men. So who they are is, is not part of where we're going this morning. Just accept that the story wants you to accept these three men are speaking for God, or one of them is certainly speaking for God. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. That's important, to keep the way of the Lord. Not his own way, to keep the way of the Lord. By doing righteousness and justice, so the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Just an aside here. Um, here, very early on in Abraham, the message of God is aligned with doing justice and the right thing. It's not, it's not only salvation by faith. Salvation by faith and doing justice. 
Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now remember that Abraham, at this time of the story, has relatives in Sodom. Lot uh, is his nephew who is in Sodom and Lot's family are in Sodom. So when a threat comes against Sodom, Abraham's thinking of his immediate family, some of whom are in Sodom. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. So now we come to Abraham approaching God. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? His family were in Sodom, and God has just said, I'm going to wipe Sodom out because it's so evil. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. And if you read the story, we go from 50 to 40 to 30 down to 10. And people say this is Abraham negotiating with God. They say this is Abraham changing God's will. This is Abraham telling God what should be done. But read the story. Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you that you shall not judge all the earth to do what is just. Shall you not do what is just? What does Abraham appeal to? It is not his will, it is do what is just. Who has defined justice? God. As far as Abraham is concerned, he does not have the Jewish law. He's not going to quote scripture. It hasn't been written yet. Abraham appeals to God for God to appeal to himself. God is just. All justice comes from God. That was clearly understood by Abraham. Shall not the God of the earth do what you have said you will do? In other words, the prayer is, your will be done. You cannot wipe out the innocent with the just because it's against your will. That's the line Abraham takes. He appeals to God's nature for God to do what God has said he will do. It's not a negotiation with God at all. There's no changing God's will or changing God's mind. It's, it's talking to God about what he will do. Secondly, God did wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, if I can find just ten people, I will not. Well, he didn't find ten. He found Lot, and he led those who were just out. So God was true to his word. He was true to his teaching. And Abraham appeals to the nature of God. Not a negotiation. To appeal to the nature of God. Let's look at another one that um, is often quoted as somebody negotiating with God to change God's mind. 
which absolutely the opposite is occurring. Skip forward a period of time which is indeterminate, we are not sure, but it was certainly a thousand or so years. It was quite a while. And we come to Moses. And we've come to a time when Moses is up in the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. So the start of the writing down of the law, the start of the structuring of God's uh, will and, and, and law. So who God was now is much more understood. Um, the, the values that God is, is preaching and teaching is more understood. Um, but there is a history now that the Jewish people, and Moses is very much aware of this history. It starts with Abraham, goes to the patriarchs, and God's promises to his people over and over again. God has promised his people, and they stand there saying, we are the people of the promise. We are the people of Israel. And Israel means one who wrestles with God. We, we are people who are in a relationship with God. That was their covenant. And Moses is up the mountain. It's been up there rather a long time. Uh, 40 odd days and they don't know what's happening a bit confusing down the bottom while Moses is something at the top and the Lord said to Moses go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So they've, they've made a golden calf. They've gone back to the, um, the culture of Egypt, which is not surprising, really. And um, they're, they're, they're sacrificing to a golden calf because they're, they're, this is what they're used to. And they're, they're, they're turning away for, from this idea of God up there somewhere. It's all a bit too much for them. They've turned away. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore leave me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. In other words, God says, right, I've had enough of them. Leave me alone that I may, not I will, I may consume them, and I'll, I'll take all the promises and put them on you. But Moses implored the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. And the temptation is to stop reading there and say, oh, Moses is bargaining with God and asking God to change his mind. But carry on reading. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, that it shall, they shall inherit it forever. So to whom and to what does Moses appeal? He appeals to what God has already said. He takes the problem and says, God, this is your nature. You 
let's, let's look at this problem against what you have said. He goes back to, to whom you swore by your own self. In other words, he says to God, you can't do that, God, because your will has to be done. And your will is that you have sworn, you have said. Now, why this interaction takes place, um, we can talk about uh, later on. We can talk about what effect this must have had on Moses. We can talk about what it's, how um, it shows that God was true to his word and he, he never did, he forgave them for what they've we, lots of, But I don't want to talk about why this interaction took place this morning. I want to look at what actually happened. What happened is that Moses had a problem and his answer was to appeal to the nature of God. You have said... To whom you swore by your own self. So there's no debate going on. There's no argument. This is a transaction in which Moses has to bring himself across to God's will. And understand that God will be governed by his own will. In doing so, he says to God, you're, you're in your will, aren't you, God? And of course, if you see the sort of interaction in that film last night, it's the sort of place you can almost see the child going, course. You learn. It's God was showing that he, it's God's will that matters. Let's skip forward now another couple of thousand years. And we come to the post-Christian or after Jesus time. And the number of times we've looked at this um, but it still still stands saying again and again and again and again and come back to the basic points of, of, of prayer and what God is saying to us. This is the story after Jesus' death, his resurrection. It's in Acts, it's Acts 4. And the early church has having a ball of a time. Uh, they're going out there, they're preaching, people are getting converted, uh, the, the, the disciples are praying and people are getting healed. And then, boom, the first problem comes along. First problem comes along, they get arrested, they get pulled in, they get pulled before the authorities of the day and they're told not to preach in this name. Now they know that this means, effectively, it's a, it's a death penalty if you do. They know this is not an empty threat. Don't preach in this name. They're told this and they're released and they go back to the church. So... It's all been great, but now we can see problems coming, and we know these are not empty threats. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, and I have a vision here, I've shared this many times with many modern Christian approaches here, Oh yes, we're going to fast and pray until they go away. We're going to change their minds. We're going to, we're going to um, insist that uh, I claim this in the name of God, Jesus, and everybody else. And the Sanhedrin are going to be bound, and all this is going to happen. And we're going to be victorious. Oh, not at all. That's not what happened. They said, Sovereign Lord. That's how they started their prayer. Sovereign Lord. You've let this happen, Lord. How do we respond? Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And by the way, this, this prayer is exactly on the format of the Lord's Prayer. 
I'm sovereign Lord, you who have made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So they come back and they appeal to what God has said. Why did the gentles rage and the peoples plot in vain? And the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they reminded themselves that what's happening was prophesied. What's happening is to be expected. God said this is going to happen. But truly, now they look at the, that was the prophecy, now they look at the fulfillment of the prophecy. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So these people, here's a prophecy. This is what's happened. What do we pray for? They have said to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. They comfort themselves by saying, this is God's will. We are going to come across a hard time. That's God's will. And if you look at the rest of that prayer, the prayer is not to change it. The prayer is to give us strength to endure. To give us strength to go through this problem. To give us strength to show God's will through the problem. Not to change it. This is prayer. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Give us strength to go through the prayer time, through the difficulties. Not necessarily to change them. Does that mean to say we should just become passive and sit in? Not at all. Because God gives us guidelines in which we may pray, as Moses did, as Abraham did. We see examples in the scriptures of bringing people before the Lord to pray for. But every single time you find prayer in the scripture, you will find the basis of that prayer is taking the situation and bringing it back into God's will. And bringing it back into God's standards. Bringing it back into the things that God would do if he was there. Not our will be done. His will be done. Next week, I'm going to look a little bit at finding God's will. How can we know God's will? It's not, it doesn't come to us written on tablets of stone all the time. How do we know God's will? But this week, I just want to finish with this thought. You don't have to know God's will to be living in prayer. It's about being prepared to accept God's will. And often God's will is revealed to us as we move to a place of preparedness. Let's not train our young people to tell God what they would like and then to demand that he helps them through it because they'll fail. Let's train them to seek God's values to come to know God's word and to live their lives in that preparation and to be the people that God wants them to be rather than the people that they might aspire to after all the pressures put upon them by the societies in which we live. And this has not changed. It's no different for us than it was for any other society. 
There's pressures upon us to be things we're not. And God wants us to be who we are in him. And as soon as we do that, our identities become tied with who God has called us to be. And that's a lot better place to be and a lot truer place to be. You can't choose your destiny. You can choose to follow God in it and be the person that God wants you to be. So, I'm going to finish a little bit early because John said we're going to have some more prayer time. That's right, is it? I can wrap it on for longer if you want me to. <laughs> no, I'm Let's just come back to the Lord's Prayer again. We all know it by heart, but I still like reading it. Here then is the, the basis of all prayer. Whatever our prayer is, it should fit into this format. I just carefully say that it doesn't say it's the only way of praying. You don't have to pray always into a quiet room on your own. You can pray together because we have scriptural examples of people praying together. But we're looking at the heart here. The heart is prayer is not showy. Prayer is not a demonstration. Prayer is, it's talking to God. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father in secret will reward you. The reason he's saying that is because at the time there was a tradition amongst the Jewish leaders to pray very publicly and to have um, sort of clothing with prayers stitched into them that they could sort of wave around to show how holy they were. So prayer had become a public demonstration of how important you were. And Jesus is coming against that. It's not that at all. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. You read some instructions today on even Christian prayer, and there's the this prayer and the that prayer and the what's it prayer and all this sort of stuff. Um, and you find often it's just repeating, it's mantras, it's, it's just uh, almost rhythmic preaching. Um, there's nothing wrong in music. Music's part of the Bible. Music is actually written in the Bible. The, the, psalm, the word psalm actually means musical instruction. Um, so, but prayer is, is not that. Pray musically, yes. But when you pray, do not let heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Well, if he knows what I need before I ask him, why am I praying? For whose benefit? God's? God knows. You're praying for your benefit. Prayer is about you moving yourself into a line with God's will. It's for your benefit. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, let your name be separated. Let it be holy. Let the things that you have taught, that you have said, that you have revealed to us, let those come to pass. Let it be what you want in my life. Just as surely on earth as it is in heaven. What we seek, Lord, is enough to allow us to live comfortably. Give us our daily bread. 
but help us to forgive others who react against us in the same way that we do. Let my behavior be godly. That's what that says. Keep us from living incorrectly. I like present Pope's take on this one. Lead us not into temptation. God isn't going to lead you into temptation. It's play on words here. If you are led into temptation, it's your fault for going that path. That's what this basically says. Help us, Lord, to live a righteous life, a holy life. Deliver us from the evil one. The Greek here is very simple. Deliver us. You can't deliver yourself from evil. You have to be delivered. In other words, this is salvation by faith. Your efforts will not get you into heaven. Only the gift of God will get you into heaven. Deliver us. By my effort... I can live a holier, holier life. By my effort, I can bring myself closer to God. But my effort will not save me. Effort comes after salvation. Salvation is a gift. Deliver us. Lord, I need to be delivered from evil. Then I can live a holy Christian life with your help and your strength and your support. And of all those thoughts, for me, the key thought... The one that is the axis on which so many errors happen, both in the history of Judah and Jerusalem and Israel and in the Christian church, is this thought. I am aligning myself to God's will, not telling him to align himself with mine. Thy kingdom come. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is so deep but so beautifully simple so help us to understand this wonderful wonderful uh, teaching that you give us help us to take our lives to take all the opportunities to put them before you and say Lord your will be done with my life and help us to gratefully accept what you will do with our lives knowing there is no greater achievement that any human being can have than to live a life in tune with God's will for our calling. Whether that makes us rich, famous, or quiet and unseen, what matters is who we are before you, not who we are before men. Amen.